As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. In the past three years, the U.S. government has spent over $5 trillion on COVID relief stimulus on top of regular budgetary spending. In hindsight, most economists acknowledge that this was excessive and probably not implemented in the best possible way. And I'm not going to tell you what's right or wrong there. The world doesn't need another opinion on government spending. But what this did do, if nothing else, is dispel the argument that the government doesn't have enough money to fund a universal basic income. That $5 trillion was enough to give every working age American $1,000 a month for the two years that COVID was seriously impacting business, which is naturally raising questions about if this would have been a better way to spend it. Indiscriminately giving money to everyone is not as crazy an idea as you might think, and arguments for a universal basic income are once again making their way into the mainstream. These proposals offer a lot of apparent advantages, which extend beyond just, it's nice to get free money. Some advocates for a UBI argue that it will do everything from actually cutting down on government expenditure to revolutionising the way that we operate our modern economies. We will get to all of that in this video, and we will also look at a lot of the problems with such a scheme. Problems that extend beyond just the obvious issue of who is going to pay for all of this free money. So to have an honest discussion about the viability of a universal basic income, we need to as always answer a few questions. How do advocates of this system propose that countries will pay to give money to all of their citizens? What advantage does a universal basic income have over traditional welfare systems? And of course, before you start collecting your free checks, What are the problems that we should consider before these systems are rolled out into our own economies? A universal basic income is a financial support system that gives money to everybody in an economy with very few exceptions. Normally UBI proposals don't include payments for people under the age of 18 or people who are not citizens of the country making the payment. Outside of that, everybody gets it. And everybody gets the same amount. It's universal. If you are a student studying full-time, you get the UBI. If you're a working professional, you get the UBI. If you're a multi-millionaire, you get the UBI. Now, as for how much this universal payment is, that varies. Different proposals and different countries at different times have called for different amounts of money. But if you look into this topic, you'll probably find the best-known proposal was Andrew Yang's $1,000 per month payment, which was the foundation of his unsuccessful 2020 presidential election bid. So let's use that as a working example, but keep in mind that some policymakers have called for more or less generous versions of this scheme. Of course, this $1,000 a month payment will mean different amounts to different people. The millionaire probably won't even notice the payment. The working professional will use this to subsidise their existing income, and to the student it might make the difference between being able to study full-time with a part-time job versus studying part-time with a full-time job. This natural marginal utility is part of the charm of the UBI model, and it's also part of the way that it justifies its significant costs. In total, the US normally spends about half a trillion dollars a year on what you would typically think of as welfare between the federal and state governments. I'm using pre-2020 figures here because obviously with the COVID relief stimulus, these numbers got a bit wacky. 
This also excludes Medicare and Medicaid because none of the major supporters of a UBI are suggesting that it replaces either of those programs. Now, of that half a trillion dollars, a not insignificant portion went to the administration of these social services. Things like caseworkers, auditors, contact staff, their managers, and all of the other general expenses that go into running an operation as big as social security. If this was all replaced with a simple automatic transfer to everybody, most of this overhead could be made redundant, significantly cutting down on the expenses. Now, there are three major problems with this argument. The first is that of simple arithmetic. Yes, the American government currently spends about half a trillion dollars a year on social security, and if instead it introduced a universal basic income, it could choose to do away with all of these programs. But giving $1,000 a month to all eligible Americans would cost at least $2.5 trillion. This also makes the argument of cutting down on administrative costs a little bit hollow. Even if administrative costs were really at the extreme high end of some estimates and they could be eliminated entirely, you're cutting out $100 billion only to turn around and spend an extra $2 trillion by adopting a UBI. The third problem is with the universalness of a universal basic income. And that is because $1,000 a month is already below the poverty line for a single person household with no additional income. If a recipient has a disability, dependent children, or simply lives in a higher cost of living area, this payment becomes extremely inadequate. There are certain problems with welfare systems in basically every country in the world that has them. Administrative costs just being the tip of the problematic iceberg. But there is a reason that countries spend so much on making sure recipients are getting the right amount of money. And that's to make sure recipients get the right amount of money. You don't want people on welfare starving, and you also certainly don't want people taking advantage of a system to get more money than they really need without contributing their fair share to an economy. But moral arguments aside, all this shows is that there really is no genuine plan for a universal basic income that doesn't involve raising more taxes. Most supporters of a UBI do acknowledge that it will need to be paid for with higher taxes across the board, particularly on higher income earners and businesses. Depending on progressive tax brackets, this is normally proposed in such a way that middle-income households don't earn any more or any less than they would have without the UBI. They might get an extra $12,000 per year, but they will pay an extra $12,000 a year in taxes because of the required increase in income tax rates. Of course, for low-income households, like those that may have been subsidised with traditional welfare systems, very little of the additional $12,000 in income will be taxed, meaning it does effectively subsidise their household budget. There is certainly nuance to the discussion that needs to be had around taxation to fund a UBI. Some advocates simply say that it should be funded with taxes levied exclusively on the extremely wealthy. The most noteworthy proposals include things like a top marginal tax rate of 70% for people earning over $10 million a year, or of course a wealth tax that takes a portion of someone's net worth over a certain figure, normally in the tens of millions. The other, probably more reasonable proposal is to remove long-term capital gains incentives and tax those earnings the same way that any other income would be taxed. Most of the time you hear about a billionaire selling their company for some crazy amount of money, they will be paying 15% on that income. If these tax rules were changed, they would be paying 37% on the majority of those gains. Or, you know, if a 70% tax rate for income over $10 million a year gets passed, they would pay that. Now, the classic counter-argument to this is that oppressive taxation will stifle the entrepreneurial spirit and disincentivize investments. 
Why would anybody risk starting their own company or making a risky investment if even the best case scenario is them giving a majority of their income to the government, or having their investment gains slowly taxed away through a wealth tax? On the surface, this sounds reasonable enough. But really this argument is about as hollow as the one claiming that a UBI will justify itself by doing away with expensive welfare administration. People are going to risk starting their own companies and making risky investments because the potential returns are still there no matter how it's taxed. Nobody is going to pass up starting a $100 million company because they have to pay $37 or even $70 million in tax instead of $15 million. In any scenario, they are set for life. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The only way to totally disincentivize the profit motive is to have a tax rate of over 100%, which obviously nobody is seriously proposing. An argument that might be a little bit more fair, though, is that if taxes are increased enough, wealthy people with the means to leave the country could just choose to leave the country. Now, this is more difficult for American citizens because their taxes follow them everywhere unless they renounce their citizenship, but for every other country, it's something that should genuinely be considered. I will give a totally anecdotal example. I am personally making nowhere near $10 million per year, but you know, I have a pretty successful YouTube channel that is making good money. This means I pay about 45% tax on my income here in Australia, which kind of hurts, especially when I know I could be doing the work that I do anywhere in the world with internet and electricity, and most of those places are going to have much lower taxes and much lower costs of living. But for now, you know, I kind of just deal with it. But if I was looking down the barrel of 70% income taxes, I'll be 100% honest with you guys. I would be one of those scumbags shopping around for a cheaper country to live in, especially since I could still remain an Australian citizen. That means Australia would lose my tax revenue entirely, and on this individual scale, they would actually be further behind on funding their new expensive UBI. Now, I'm sure the Australian government doesn't really care about me as an individual, but If enough people do this, and a lot of people already are, it could result in lower net tax revenues despite the higher rate. Capital flight, as this is known, is normally an overblown issue, but remote working has kind of become a big thing in the past three years. Now lots of people don't have anything in particular holding them down to a certain location. Could governments around the world be doing a better job of effectively taxing extremely wealthy people? Absolutely. At the very least, they should be paying the same rate of tax as working class individuals. But governments also have to realise that people with lots of money have lots of options, and trying to get too much out of them can backfire. Unfortunately, a UBI would represent such a significant expenditure that the only way to sustainably fund it would be through tax increases in one form or another that would probably fall into the too much category, 
for a lot of very wealthy people who are already paying a lot of tax. Raising enough money to sustainably fund this program would be difficult, to say the least. And for the short term, it would most likely involve governments taking on more debt to bridge the funding gap. That's not necessarily a problem in and of itself, especially not for the US because it uses the world's reserve currency. But would it be worth it? What would a UBI do for the economy? It would certainly increase consumer demand. If everyone had an extra $1,000 in their pocket every month, that's an extra $1,000 that they could spend at businesses who could pass that $1,000 on to their suppliers, investors or employees. This is the basic idea of all economic stimulus. More money in the economy means more consumption, more investment and more employment. All other things being equal. But it also means more inflation, which I'm sure a lot of you have been thinking the entire time you've been watching this video. Inflation is honestly the biggest problem with the UBI, bigger even than the problem of how to fund the damn thing. Injecting that much money into the economy outside of a major economic downturn is simply going to cause demand pull inflation. I made a video on my second channel explaining everything that you need to know about inflation, so if you're unsure, feel free to pause this video and go and check that one out. Now a counter-argument to this inflation problem is that if tax increases fully offset UBI expenditures, then the government won't actually be conducting expansionary fiscal policy. They will just have more money coming in and more money going out. Now if this argument was true, it would also mean that the stimulus benefits we explored earlier would be undone because on average everybody wouldn't have an extra thousand dollars in their pocket every month. They would have nothing extra. The thing is though, this argument isn't true. A UBI would have a stimulating effect on the economy because while on average the government may not be giving out more money, it is giving more to lower income households while taking tax money from wealthier households. If someone making $5 million a year pays an extra million dollars in tax, their lifestyle probably wouldn't change radically. Chances are they would still live in a beautiful home, drive whatever car they wanted, travel whenever they had time and eat out without thinking twice about it. Likewise, if that same person got an extra $12,000 a year, it's very unlikely that their spending decisions would change at all. But for people earning a low salary, these adjustments would make a big difference. Most people on even good incomes basically save nothing, which means everything they earn is going to taxes or expenditure. And this is especially true for people on low incomes. Now since a UBI would be structured in such a way as to increase the net income of people on lower incomes, that would mean that spending would increase for these households, probably by an amount close to $12,000. So the net aggregate result would be minimal reductions in spending from high income households, accompanied by massive increases in spending from lower income households, which would put strong upwards pressure on consumer prices. I know a UBI sounds like one of those ideas that's so crazy it just might work, but it's probably not. A UBI is often proposed as a solution to the problems of automation. What are we going to do in a future where machines do the jobs of people better than people can? I think what a UBI does do really well is act as a thought experiment or a case study to address a lot of the big issues that we face in modern advanced economies. Wealth inequality, welfare systems, global capital mobility, and what we're going to do when robots take all of our jobs. We are going to need answers to these questions. On one extreme you have the laissez-faire, let them all starve approach, and on the other hand you have the what if we gave everyone free money approach. Obviously, the real solution to these issues lies somewhere in between these two extremes. But that doesn't mean that there isn't value in thinking about how something like this could play out. 
Likewise, I don't think people like Andrew Yang genuinely believe that the US would ever adopt his proposed UBI system, but just the fact that he raised the idea in a setting as serious as a presidential campaign means that a lot of people have learnt about it and a lot of people might be thinking of toned down alternatives. Nobody can predict the future, least of all economists, but it's important that we are always stress testing new ways to make the lives of economic participants more comfortable, whichever way the world does go. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.